So we'll settle in. take a few minutes to really let ourselves settle. Bringing attention to our posture. Finding a position that's aligned and solid. Relaxing into our breathing. minutes I'm going to start talking, but you can continue to stay in a meditative zone if you want to. Even as I share some of the thoughts to shape our day. This series of daylongs over the next, over these nine months or so, will be focused on the Noble Eightfold Path, as you know. And of course, this is the teaching that the Buddha gave from the beginning of his ministry to the very end inviting people to pick up this path and practice to relieve suffering, to develop all the skills that we need to realize Nibbana. This is what the Buddha called the middle way, even though we think of the middle way as, of course, and it is the, the non, um, 
indulgence and sensual pleasures being one extreme and not moving in the other direction to um, being too tight, too austere, even self-mortification, which wasn't just happening at the Buddha's time, but we still may beat ourselves up in various ways and there are still some ideas out there that if you deny the body what it needs, perhaps that will purify the mind. And the Buddha, through his own experiments, realized that that didn't work. And he discovered this middle way, which is very much a different thing from either of the other two. It's not just some halfway point or compromise, it's a whole system of development. And of course, you, you probably are already quite aware that there are three main areas of attention in the Noble Eightfold Path that um, we have the training of the higher mind, the training of higher discipline, the training of wisdom. And the wisdom training, right view and right intention are the factors that the Buddha listed first. And then he went on to virtue right speech, right action, right livelihood. And the final three, right energy, right mindfulness, right concentration or stillness. And he starts with wisdom because it takes wisdom to even begin to pick up the path. A certain amount of wisdom, which a certain amount you already have or you wouldn't be here, a certain awareness that there is something to understand. There is something you already understand that says, this is a good thing to do. This practice, this investigation into meditation, into the workings of the mind, into the nature of reality. And then for each factor of the path, and probably most importantly perhaps for these first two, especially right view, right view, which we'll be focused on today, is there's this level that we need in the beginning, and then it evolves into what they sometimes call super mundane right view which is a really profound shift in the way human beings generally see things. A kind of seeing that really paves the way to complete peace and happiness. So the first stage, this mundane right view, sometimes we think, oh, well, that's 
That's the kindergarten stage. I want to just jump over that. But actually, it's it's really the the part that we need to operate skillfully in the world. So that part is about being in the world. And the super mundane part is about the other world. What we can experience going beyond what can be seen, heard, tasted, touched in this world. Now some people might think that's beyond me. I don't have that ability, but you do actually. Not that you're necessarily, or not that any one of us necessarily is developing psychic powers or that kind of thing, but we do have this ability to have the sense of more than the material world. A connection to one another that's not really explained by material reality. And a sense of something beyond that. And there are many indications. So we're going to talk about the whole package of right view today. We really consider how to practice in order to develop right view. And the places where we might be holding on to a bit of wrong view. Now, right and wrong is not like some moralistic, um, arbitrary determination. It really is just, is this the way things actually work or not? The right view is about the way things actually work that can be verified and validated through our experience. And certainly, some of those things that we aren't yet able to experience for ourselves, we can look to the Buddha's experience and the experience of others who have traveled this path before us and found enlightenment. So, in this way, the right right view is really the forerunner of the entire path. It sets us up for practicing all of the other aspects. It establishes a framework. Right view leads to happiness and peace, and wrong view leads to suffering. Because it's not in alignment with the way things actually are. In the Anguttara Nikaya, the Buddha said that no single factor is so responsible for the suffering of living beings as wrong view. And no factor is so potent in promoting the good of living beings as right view. They said no single factor is so responsible for the arising of unwholesome states of mind as wrong view. And no single factor 
is so helpful for the arising of wholesome states of mind as right view. And some of you may have already delved into Bhikkhu Bodhi's Noble Eightfold Path book, but whether you have or not, I'll be quoting a little bit from it today. And one of the things Bhikkhu Bodhi writes there about right view is that in its fullest measure, right view involves a correct understanding of the entire Dhamma, the entire teaching of the Buddha. And thus its scope is equal to the whole range of the Dhamma itself. So it's a bit much to bite off for a day, but we'll do the best we can. <laughs> because most of that realization is, is through the practice. So we need to at least gain as much ground as we can on understanding what right view and wrong view are, and then how to practice it. And sometimes things can sound really complicated, but they don't have to be. So Ajahn Chah would distill it all down to right view is just to know and let go. <clears throat> And wrong view, he depicted with a simile, he said, if a dog has mange, and you see this a lot in Thailand, especially in monasteries where people dump dogs out and let them home. Um, a dog that has mange will lay down over that there by that tree and then is there for a little while, then gets up and moves over to the other side of the road, and then is there for a little while, and then moves over to another spot, and it's on like that all day. It's not because there's anything wrong with the spot where they were, it's just they're carrying that mange with them, that discomfort is carrying is with them, and that's how it is when we have wrong view. There's no real rest. There's no real comfort. But sometimes the, the wrong view is something that we've been handed in our life from early on. And we probably am going to talk about some of the ways in which wrong view appears in our world. And I think you may find that you also have been exposed to these things. I know I have. And Meeting up with the Dhamma is such a relief to see the clarity that the Buddha had based on his own direct experience, not based on what someone told him. Not based on, as, as you're probably well aware of those passages that say, not based on what you read in a book, not based on what, oh, this is what our teacher says, not based on some oral, some tradition, oral or written. Um, basically not based on what's publicly popular, but based on what we can try out for ourselves. So we'll start with this part of right view that is related to how we operate in the world. 
And basically, um, it's about karma. Karma. Karma is our volitional actions by body, speech, and mind. That's one one important aspect of karma. I say one because there's also the part of the once we've acted, whether it's with our speech or our bodily action or our mental action, then there's the kama out there in the world that kind of that can come back to us. And that's kama also, the results. That's called vipaka kama. So we experience both of these every day. We take action, we do things, we say things, we think things, and we also experience the results. One of the results that we experience is that we're here in a living body, in a human body. That is because of kama. Kama from the past. What does it take to be born as a human being? Well, generally it's a kind of a mixture of wholesome and unwholesome actions and quite a few wholesome actions because being a human being is quite quite a good thing um, in general. But then it also requires a certain level of, of craving and clinging because that's what causes this stream of consciousness to come back into existence in a in a human form. Well, that's the rebirth part. We will get to that in a minute more. <laughs> so we want to understand how Kama works as best we can, how the things that we think and do and say create results. And what kinds of results do they create? Well, the Buddha was very clear that Wholesome actions, so again, just judging wholesome and unwholesome based on the results. Does it bring suffering or does it bring happiness? Does it bring misery or does it bring peace? Does it bring chaos? Um, Does it bring some kind of satisfaction? So the Buddha identified ten wholesome actions and ten unwholesome actions. And he talked about them a lot. And there's one sutta in the middle-length discourses, and there are probably at least 70, 70 suttas in the Anguttara Nikaya about this list of ten. It's a pretty important list. And most of, and you'll probably recognize all of it, but it's kind of nice to see it in its package. So the first... The, the list as we... Um, let's look at the unwholesome first. To destroy life, so to kill. Intentional killing. So remember, kama is intentional. It's volitional. It means you, have, you make a conscious choice. Now, some of our quote-unquote conscious choices are also habitual, so they may not really be at the level of conscious 
this that you think, oh, I'm actually deciding to do this. It may be something that we're more conditioned to do. But those things can still be brought into total, complete conscious awareness and changed. So our habits um, that we develop or that we've learned from others can be changed if we bring them to conscious examination. So it does include some of those things, those kinds of things. We may have a strong habit, a mosquito lands on you and you smash it. Um, that certainly was my habit. I mean, I grew up on a farm. You kill anything that gets in your way if it's not <coughs> helpful, um, which is not the way I live now. <laughs> and the first time I ever experienced being around people who didn't kill anything was when I was in the monastery in Thailand at Wat Chat, where my son had ordained as a novice at that time. And it was a whole new world for me, where people are, you know, brushing the ants gently out of their cup or, um, you know, really taking care that the the rats would be humanely trapped and released and so many other things that never occurred to me growing up on a farm in Indiana where walking around with the fly swatter was a normal thing. <laughs> and I did some pretty, you know, here's, here's the investigation part. It's not what you're used to. Never seen that before. Does it really do any good? So does it really do any good to you know, preserve this insect's life for how long? How long do they live anyway? Is this really important? As I was trying it, because that's what we have to do, see a teaching we don't know for ourselves if that's valuable, then we have to try it out. It's good to try it out. That's one of the ways that we learn and begin to see more for ourselves. And then the other way is to have wise friends, and in that case I had both handy wise friends, monks, teachers, and an opportunity to practice. So what I found as I was being gentle and kind with these small beings is that my heart changed, became softer, it became more caring. And it was clear that that was a good thing. I became uh, a believer in the first precept. The second unwholesome action is to take what is not given the third one is sexual misconduct. The fourth one is false speech. Now, of course, it's very fortunate that we don't have to try all the bad things in order to understand that they're... <laughs> well, many of us have done plenty of it anyway, so <laughs> probably are getting the idea. Um, and then, so those are the four, first four precepts uh, that you just took. And the fifth one is not on this list, abstaining from drugs and alcohol. 
it's not on this list of unwholesome things. And you might ask, why in the world is that? Because that does cause a lot of trouble, and I'm glad that it's a fifth precept. It's because the kama from those first four, and now I'm talking about the, the, the kama as you do it and it gets released into the world, is definitely always negative. If you kill, there's a negative result. If you, if you steal, if you take something, it's not given, it's a negative result. And so on. Now, that's, that's what you put in motion. But that still doesn't mean that that negative result is going to come to you in a particular form. That's more of the complication of karma. The vipaka karma that comes back is tempered and modified by many other factors, including all the good things that you do that change the impact of that vipaka karma including it kind of going underground and becoming kind of dormant when there's different causes and conditions that can uh, cause it to ripen. So even though I say it has a definite negative result, it has a definite negative impact on the world, on other beings, it has a definite impression on your own karmic stream, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to have that same experience. And drugs and alcohol, partaking in drugs and alcohol is not the same. It depends. The, The negative results are often there, but it's not automatic like it is with the others. If I go home tonight and I take a glass of wine and I don't do or say anything unskillful. It may not be good for my body, and as a nun, it's certainly not going to be good because of my vows. That's going to be negative. If I don't have those vows, then what is it like? Well, it isn't a sure thing that it's going to cause harm. But those other four, they cause harm. So that's why that one's not on this list. Instead... The fifth thing on this list is divisive speech. So the Buddha goes deeper into speech here. We had lying, now we have divisive speech. The sixth one is harsh speech. The seventh one is idle chatter. But idle chatter actually makes the top ten of unwholesome. Imagine that. And that's one of the hardest ones to avoid, I think. Um, Because we don't really see the harm. And yet, it muddles up the mind. And it, of course, can cause problems in in your world. And so the Buddha gave a list of things that he told the monks not to talk about. I don't have it memorized. Ajahn Amaro can reel it off, and it's very funny, but I'm not as funny as Ajahn Amaro. <laughs> but it's things like kings and battles and armies and 
wells and roads and women and I always throw men in there too because really um, <laughs> um, and perfumes and unguents and beds and vehicles and so you get the idea and how much of our talk centers around such things and it's important to make a distinction between the talk that actually has a, uh, an important purpose and the talk that doesn't, even about those things. Sometimes you do have to talk about your vehicle. It has to get repaired. Talking about the king, well, <coughs> travel at your own risk. Um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> you may not share my views. <laughs> And and that's not one that the Buddha said is right view, so let's just stick to the topic. <laughs> I remind myself. Okay. Number eight is longing or covetousness, and it falls in to this like desire category. And number nine is ill will. And number ten is wrong view. So we have to have right view to have right view. Okay, <laughs> we'll try. <laughs> so the positive side of that is abstaining from taking life, abstaining from taking what is not given, abstaining from sexual misconduct, abstaining from false speech, divisive speech, harsh speech, idle chatter. And instead of longing... What we have is non-longing. So that way in Pali where you just add an A in the front and you've got the opposite. And then there's always that investigation of what does it mean. And I think we can check into our mind. Am I longing for anything or not? Do I want something or not? Am I at peace? Am I content or not? The opposite of ill will here is goodwill. So that's kind of active. You know, some real meta. And of course, right you. Now, comma is something that's really filtered into our culture now. A lot of people use that word. Sometimes it's used in a way that isn't quite the way the Buddha meant. But it's definitely out there. And, it, and it's also in some of our more Western, um, traditional Western religions. You know those church signs that you see, you know, where they have the marquee and they put messages or the service times or whatever? There's one. There was one in Lexington, Kentucky, where it says, Whoever stole our AC units, keep one. It's hot where you're going. Oh, that's comma. So there's a good understanding of that kind of in that. What goes around comes around. I always used to say that where I grew up. You have some natural idea about this. I think the part that gets a little more 
um, sensitive and complicated is when we try to connect our current experience with things that have been done in the past. And there's usually a danger in that. Now, it's I would say it's not dangerous if it's something that we realize through our meditation practice. Like we can re- actually realize, as the Buddha did, because he saw his many, many, many past lives, and he also saw... You know, that was the first realization he saw his many, many past lives. So he saw how he behaved in one life and how he was reborn into situations in the next life and so on through eons. Well, that's a lot of information. That gives you a really good sense of how the pattern works. Mm -hmm. But then he turned his attention to other living beings who may not have quite as pristine a past as he had, um, because he's seeing them do all sorts of things and how they get reborn in different situations. So he could say from that experience that if you're stingy, you wind up someday in situations where you don't have things. If you're mean, you get reborn at some point ugly. And so on. He said things like this throughout his teaching. So if you realize something about how you got like this through your meditation, through recalling or realizing, that might be the case. Um, I know why I like the color blue and why I like viney patterns and you know, a whole host of other more significant things. Why did I really feel compelled to be in that relationship? And it doesn't all go back to this lifetime. So as your therapist tries to sort it out from your childhood, it may not be going back far enough. Now I know for some that's hard to take in and accept. We have quite a bit of resistance to the idea of rebirth in this culture. And I don't quite understand it, actually, because even our Abrahamic religions have a rebirth idea, and some more explicit than others, but if you're going to heaven or you're going to hell, that's a rebirth. They just think it's eternal, and but the Buddha didn't think it was eternal. He said it's more like you pay the bill you, you made. Um, I may have... I use this metaphor a lot. This is something my son said to me. He said, if you go to a restaurant and you order a cup of coffee and the person at the next table orders a five-course meal, when the check comes, you get the check for the coffee. They get the check for the five-course meal, and that's the way kama is. So when I talked to the monks about, it was very early on, before I was a Buddhist, and I was just trying to figure this out, about the, the things I had done that I regretted in the past. And they said, well, too bad, you did it. <laughs> <laughs> We're not going to absolve you of your sin. We can't wash it away. We're not going to take it away for you. You did it. And that's there. And then, of course, they did share that we do learn and we do change, and that makes a huge difference. But 
this recognition, they said, if you have to go to hell, you may only be there for five minutes because of the nature of what you did. Not so bad. Okay, it's one way to think of it. It's not forever, whatever it is, the result plays itself out when the energy expends itself when it's complete. So that's one way to try to start to get an idea of this idea of what are the results of karma. But when we try through our analytical mind to relate the cause and the effect we often go wrong. Um, someone was talking to me not long ago about the fact that they just had, this couple had just experienced a miscarriage. And they were relating this to four years earlier when they had gotten an abortion. And they were afraid that that was the cause. And I explained we cannot look at it that way. That is not how it works. Um, there are many reasons one can have a miscarriage. There are many ways that the things that we've done in the past get changed, altered, mixed with other things. Many, many differences based on our intentions, on the situations. Intention has a huge component in the results of our actions. Sometimes in Buddhist countries you'll see people gravitate towards this idea that, well, if they're poor, that's because they were stingy in the past. Why should I care? If people are ill, they're deformed, they must have done something bad before. Why should I care? Why should I help? That's definitely the wrong taking up of the idea of karma. If it hardens your heart, if it brings up this kind of um, I want to say fear, but there is a wholesome kind of fear. A wholesome kind of fear is the fear of doing wrong things, the fear of doing these things on this list. But this kind of trepidation that is related to things of the past is unhealthy, unnecessary. I hope that makes sense. It's like we have free will. We have the ability to make choices now. We can do the things that purify the mind and purify the heart and even purify the past through our efforts now. And it's useful to reflect on what is the path of spiritual recovery in this case because there's always a path of spiritual recovery and making the effort to do that is worthwhile.
I think that might be enough for the moment. Take some time to sit. If you need a break, feel free to get up, use the bathroom, which is down toward the front door. If you ever need to get up and stretch, feel free to do that. Do you like the temperature now? Do you need a little more air? How does everyone feel? Do you need a little fresh air in here? Mm-hmm. A little yeah. bit? Yeah. Thank you. We're all locked in. Mm-hmm. There will be time for questions at the end of the day, but it'll be good to maintain noble silence until then. And just let it soak in your own reflections on your own experience with right view and wrong view, your own feeling in the body, what you can know from your own body about this whole area, very important area of investigation. Maybe a little bit, maybe just one side. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.